Hey guys, I hope you're loving the Making Bank episodes. Please make sure you guys like and share these episodes as well as comment below for the guests. They love to come back and interact with you. And I really appreciate you watching and listening to Making Bank. So thank you. You are, you are listening to Making Bank, where we uncover the mindset and success strategies of the top 1% so you can amplify your life and your business. business. Welcome to Making Bank. I am Josh Felber, where we uncover the mindset and the success strategies of the top 1% so you can amplify your life and your business today. Excited for today's guest, Garrett Gunderson, Babak Azad, Henry Kaminsky, Marshall Silver, Mark Podolsky, Cole Hatter, Stephen Kotler. You kind of have those morning rituals. You know, what are some of the ones that have worked well for you that have either put you on the path of success or have kept you, you know, in that space you are now? Man, when I had my radio show, I would ask people, almost everyone on the show that was really successful had some type of morning ritual. So I start typically by meditation. So I just get up and meditate, um, and that's the beginning. Second is I usually go, I have a gym in my house now. I used to go to CrossFit, but I, you know, my wife's like, you're going to hurt yourself, old man. You need to stop going to that. So I, so I have a, a programs designed for me, and I just go down and, and do workouts in my gym. And on, on days off, I might do a little bit of stretching or you know, do the roller or some, some stuff like that. And then third, I go and write in my five-minute journal and then write a thank you note. And that's kind of my morning ritual is to start with that. When I'm really dialed in, I might listen to something on personal development or read my book. But honestly, I get seduced into listening to sports talk radio instead of doing that half the morning. So that's the reality of what happens, even though my intentions are the other side. So <laughs> that's awesome. Well, cool. Where can people find more about you, your business? I know you said you uh, mentioned that uh, you had a giveaway as well. So tell us a little bit more couple cool giveaways. So wealthfactory.com forward slash tax will kind of help you, you know, with the questions to ask your tax professionals. Um, you can go to wealthfactory.com, but if you want specific resources, you can go to WF resources. So wealthfactory.com forward slash WF resources, which are everything from, you know, our investment scorecards. So you can find out if investments in alignment with you to our cash flow guides for entrepreneurs. So there's just a lot of cool free stuff for you to get to know us and us to get to know you. Um, but, you know, I have my newest book. If you want a copy of that, you can text 801-396-7211, 801-396-7211. It's called What Would the Rockefellers Do? So you just put in the subject line, WWRD. The download is on me. But if you want the book, I'll buy the book. I just bought 5,000 more copies because we're completely out. I'll buy the book for you if you'll pay for the shipping, and I'll send you the actual copy um, and get that in your hands. So 801-396-7211, and it's WWRD. So. No, that's awesome. That's, that's really cool. That, uh, so we got the book, and we got some tax, different tax questions, everything to ask. So I appreciate that. And I know our audience is going to definitely love that as well here. So what uh, maybe one last thing you want to leave everybody with um, either a life success point or business or what, whatever you feel that you, they really need to know here. Look, this is this is key. We know as business owners that we should have an A team. And the, if you have A teamers, business typically goes well. But look at your financial life and make sure do you have full A teamers and are you completely covered? Because Cornelius Vanderbilt had more money than the U.S. Treasury, and 54 years after he died, the first Vanderbilt died broke because they didn't have an A-team in their financial life. 
the Rockefellers built a Rockefeller family office, which was their own A-team, and they're on their sixth generation of that estate growing, of donating a ton of money, and having a whole bunch of wealth. Having an amazing financial team is one of the most strategic advantages I think you can have. And don't just think that earning more solves all problems. Keep more of what you make and plug the leaks and be more efficient with your dollars. Phenomenal, man. Where do you see the level where you really need to start paying that importance, uh, attention to the brand? Is it, you know, you're in that $100,000 year range. Is it that $2 million? Is it that $10 million? Or, you know, or yeah. as soon as you open the doors? Kind of I, I mean, I think there is a component <laughs> where I think hopefully you're... The one part about brand that I think a lot of people miss right. is um, is product. Okay. So, you know, I think you got a lot of people who don't care about their product at all, right? right. Which is like, well, then do you care about your customer at all? And, you know, and so there's, I think, if assuming you're coming out with a relatively new product or either private labeling or whatever, like, sure. so your brand is reflected the moment you start selling something. And so I think it has to begin, I think it's before day zero of selling, right? And right. so I think that you have to have that sensibility very early on, again, assuming you want to build something. I think you can market your way through worse products. I think sure. the Droid, technology-wise, is better than an iPhone. Apple has figured out how to market it and make the cool factor of the iPhone better. But I think technology-wise, I think most people probably agree that a Droid is better. I got an iPhone, right? So <laughs> I'm, I, I, people make these right. decisions. Yeah. But again, over the long run, I think, look, also Apple's an exception, right? You can always point to the exception, right. but it's also generally speaking, People who have better products generally are going to have a bit of an easier time. They're not always going to win, but I'd rather have a better product and try to be selling that than a, than a crappier product. And yeah. so I think you ask when do you start thinking about it? I think as you start developing your product and then as you start positioning it and start being thoughtful about what does the brand stand for and like what is the messaging, what is the promise, um, what is, and that's all into your hook and your right. tactics and yeah. what you have in your copy what promise do you make to people and then are you delivering it and by the way your product or service that's probably the proof or not for sure so i think you start talking about brand essentially when you start thinking about what am i going to market and you know what is it that people are actually going to experience because ultimately we can do as much as we want to tell people what the brand is right the customer is the one ultimately who defines the brand right in that for sense sure. their experience of it they're the one who's going to talk about it to their friends their colleagues, their peers, social media, wherever, right? So there's only so much in there we can control, right. uh, at least about what they say, but we can hopefully control their experience or affect their experience. Yeah, no, and I think that's interesting because, I mean, it's, it gives you kind of a whole different way to look at what the brand is. It's not, okay, cool, you know, here's our logo, here's this, right. here's, you know, here's the product. Yep. Um, you know, kind of wrapping, like you said, the whole experience, uh, the uh, customer from purchase to questions to right. uh, returns if they need to and yeah. that kind of thing, and then creating that um, experience for them. Yeah, I mean, I've heard people talk about, look, your brand is not the logo. And it's not the colors, it's all that right. stuff. Those are representations of it, but ultimately it's the perspective, the values. Sure. And when people think about the word or your name or your product or service, what is the feeling they have? What is the experience of it? What has been it? How would they describe it? That's much more about the brand, yep. right? As opposed cool. to just you know a, a super glossy logo or a cute name or, or whatever. That's, again, those are representations as opposed to what really is the brand experience. And that's why for me, brand is about customer experience. Right. Right. How are you treating the customer yeah. um, in all the touch points? Cool. No, that's awesome. Um, we just got a couple of minutes left. Uh, I just wanted to see, I know we were talking a little bit um, earlier, what are maybe like three kind of action steps? You know, so somebody has their business now and they're like, boom, you know, I just want to 
take it to that next level, right. um, where would you tell them to start and then kind of a couple of points from there? Yeah, so I think a couple things. So one is very an honest question to yourself. Do you have an offer and a channel that are working today? Um, and I say that because I had a call yesterday with someone who thought they had something right. and there really wasn't there. So okay. sounds very obvious. So let's just get that out of the way. Right. I'm assuming you have an offer and, uh, and a thing. So the next thing is, uh, you know, it's really, if you're especially in the physical products world, Google, Facebook, and Amazon, you gotta be in those places. Okay. And, uh, and for me then, if you're in, in if you're an info product, then Google and Facebook, fine. You don't have right. Amazon, although Amazon is starting to get into video now. Um, for me, if you also if you're in Google, then add Bing, which is yeah, it's five percent. But my comment is, well, if you don't want that five percent, can I have it? And no one has ever said yes. And I make that kind of not just flippantly, right. but it's like to prove a point. If you have Google working, adding Bing is not that much more work, but you get some pretty high ROI. And at okay. the same time, if you have Facebook working, add Instagram, and it's literally in your same Facebook ad, ads manager. So part of it is leverage what you already have today. Okay. And so um, that's the first place from a traffic side. Sure. And then it's how do you think about adding more relevant stuff to offer to your product, to your consumer, right? So hopefully it's good stuff. And essentially, how do you maximize LTV? Whether Whatever your scale is, the biggest pushback I hear from people is, well, I don't have enough product. And that's where just use an affiliate product, right? So find a third party uh, okay. product that is re relative or is uh, complementary or it's relevant to your audience. Sure. Figure out what is your audience, what kinds of things do they like, and what kinds of things might you test. And what a lot of people do is they use affiliate traffic to test out product development. And so if you think, uh, hey, yeah. my audience may like an info product or a health offer or a dating offer, and you might be thinking about that, you can offer a third party product see how that works for your audience. Right. You start generating traffic. They're the ones delivering the product or service, and you've gotten information about what works and what doesn't. And by the way, that's 100% ethical and legal, right? So, yeah. and it's not you're just, I mean, so I'm assuming you're not gonna plagiarize 100% of what they did, but that's a way to actually get a sense of what is your consumer and market like. Because cool. you may think you know them, um, and you, you, you gotta test it ultimately. Right. I think that's one of the biggest things we all learn, is what you think and what happens in reality <laughs> sometimes yeah. doesn't play out. Right? right, so I think it's about like find the channels that are working, find the offers, increase customer LTV, um, get some basic reporting in there, and then uh, and yeah, I mean that that ultimately like, that takes you I think a good ways. Sure. And then when you want that kind of next level of really digging into cost optimization, right, shipping and fulfillment and and they were super unsexy. I mean, all the cost stuff is unsexy for a lot of people. Right. But it's margin dollars, right? Yeah. You're writing a check to UPS or to your yeah. warehouse. Like that's cash. Right. So, you know, how do you start working on that stuff and, and really get going on there? Um, again, like I'm assuming, and then the brand stuff that I talked about, that's really just, that should be overarching, right? right? I mean, yeah, you may run a little bit on Facebook for branding or you may do some partnership deals, excuse me, uh, things like that. Right. But ultimately like that should just be overarching and transcend it. And then hopefully over time you start to improve the product. Um, cool. So like, I think those are like, that's a lot right there right and so and i think that look i know some people here on maybe just want to get to like seven figures and eight figures right. but i know that can take people to 100 million too and then once you get to that point then you start worrying about other issues but you know like literally sometimes it's like how do i pay next week and whatever yeah. it's a bit of like hey what kind of offers and channels um are you working and then where are the places you can just start to incrementally add uh value cool. uh and true value, not just dollar value, but value to your consumer and right. relevance to them, and then hopefully that translates into value for the business. Cool, no, that's awesome. And I know you mentioned uh, just 
they may have like like you said you find help and find hidden money sitting there so you know finding those things if it's you, something where they're worried about paying that ne that next payroll and everything else there's possibly there's certain things that are sitting there whether right. it's an offer or something they could just quickly add or come put together of with what they're already doing right. to start generating some extra cash and yeah. everything for it and them, one so. of the easiest places by the way is model not copy but right. model off your competition see what yeah. the competition is doing yeah. and do some research and yeah, the whole John Wooden thing, focus on yourself, that's great. But it's also sometimes you just need some ideas or you need, hey, we're making things much more difficult. Most of the things out there have been solved by someone else. Sure. And unless you're completely innovative, like, you know, and even Tesla, I would argue, is not even that. I mean, they're copying other people, right, in many right. ways, just in a different way. <laughs> right. But most of the, my sense is most of the people here and some of, some of the stuff I'm, most of the stuff I'm working on, you know, there are models and comps. And so don't be afraid to look at what other people are doing because cool. you don't have to reinvent the wheel, right? Yeah. And so there's a lot of information and there are a lot of people who are in that environment. And by the way, if you're in an entirely new market, that's a harder battle, yeah, right? So sure. just, you know, I think doing something that other people are doing is, that's not a bad thing. Just hopefully you do your, you bring your own new spin to it. Awesome. You know, you are awesome. I've seen your work and you do such a great job with, you know, the design and getting that message, like I mentioned earlier. And you didn't start out that way. You weren't like, oh, I'm going to be a graphic designer. That's what I went to school for. And you're like, oh, this just looks cool. Let me figure this out. And that, I mean, that's amazing. I think that's, that's so cool just, you know, by seeing that and finding that connection with and that love for, for you for graphic design and then just, you know, applying and learning and becoming so good at it, yeah. I think that, and yeah. Well, one of the things that I realized recently, right. because again, competition is getting so tough, oh, yeah. right? And I was a designer, I was a creative, I didn't know much about sales. Sure. You know, I wasn't a salesperson. I struggled with it for, for months and, and, and years, really. And uh, one thing I got really clear with, and I think the audience <clears throat> will, will appreciate this, is I got really clear on what exactly was I selling? Was I really selling design? Right. Was I really selling messaging or marketing? No. When I would interview my clients after they would come on board, sure. I would say, why'd you hire me? They said, I don't want to do this stuff. I don't have the time <laughs> for it. Right. And I got 50 ideas in my head and I don't know which one to do. Uh. I need guidance. I need support. I need somebody to bounce some things off of. Sure. So I'm not spinning my wheels. I've been sitting here trying to design this, this email marketing campaign for six weeks. Right. I know you can do it in two days. How much time do you want to save? Yeah. So I restructured my, my continuity program based on time. Okay. So now it's, 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 you're buying time from me. Gotcha. And so I asked them, how much time do you want to save? Right. And we go from there. Cool. So. Yeah, that's awesome. That's really what I'm selling is time. I yeah, I like that. I mean, that's. And I think I remember seeing something you did send out, and you know, you kind of buy those blocks of time for whatever work. Right. And, and, and they could and yeah. they could do whatever they want with it. You know, whether it's strategy, landing page sure. design, ad design, print collateral, strategy. Right. You want to jump on a call with me for an hour and just sift things, sift some ideas past me. Sure. Because I'm in the trenches. I'm doing this every right. day. And you're seeing it and make, seeing what's working, what's not working. Right. So that's one of the things I want your audience to understand is, you know, people don't buy products or services. They buy feelings. They buy emotions. Right, emotions yeah. They buy value. Right. So what value are you selling ultimately to your audience? You gotta no, get clear on awesome. that. You gotta get clear on that. What yeah. So real quick before yeah. before we jet, 
three things. Sure. Three yeah. things. Three tangible things. Wrap up tangible yeah. Three thing tangible sure. things that if you're an entrepreneur, business owner, that you're struggling with is one: be passionate about what you do, right? Or don't do it at all. That's number one. Number two: focus in on one big idea, one clear message on what it is that you do that can help your, sure, you know, audience. And number three, you have to make sure that you invest in your image. Because unfortunately, people judge. Right. People will judge books by their cover. And if you don't look the part, you only got three seconds now, Josh. <laughs> yeah, if that. That's it, right? <laughs> yeah. So it's like you have to invest because once they get past, that just builds the trust. And if you could build the trust and build that relationship, it's over. Game over. You can give an image makeover, right? That's it. That's it. <laughs> well, cool. A lot of entrepreneurs I talk to in interviews and everything, they have like different success strategies or maybe things that they do on a daily basis that has led to it. Obviously, I know you do a lot with mindset and you know, uh, you know, looking at different ways um, to change your thought patterns and to help move yourself forward. What are some maybe some other success habits that you do on a daily basis? Avoid MWAs. Avoid minimum wage activities. Ah, Stop making your bed. There's no reason to make your bed. <laughs> Nobody is going to walk in your bedroom during the day. You're the only one that's going to see it. Stop it. <laughs> if you're taking it up around your own house, if you're doing all those minimum wage activities, hire a maid. Sure. And, and, and yeah, rich boy, easy for you to say. Hire a maid. 20 bucks an hour. In two hours, they can do what you would do in 10 hours. Right. Hand that stuff off. As an entrepreneur, your focus should be one thing. You should be focused on IGAs, income generating activities. You should be focused on the things that make money. You need to learn the skills of irresistible influence. And irresistible influence isn't getting somebody else to say yes. Irresistible influence is getting someone else to ask you for what you're selling. And your uh, part that's gonna make you tingle, it, the, your job is to get them to ask you for what you're selling and have them believe it was their idea. <laughs> that's key. And so should you just learn that skill set, that skill set will make you wealthy. Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, I'm, I'm guarantee you, Elon Musk. These are people that I promise you don't know the technology the way their employees know their technology. But these people, these these gentlemen, and 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 you know, rest in peace, Steve Jobs, knew that in order for you to become wealthy, one of the best things you can do is harness creative people's abilities, harness their abilities. You know that that's the thing. I'm a I'm weird. I, I kind of straddle the creative management fence, and and I'm embarrassed to acknowledge that I'm more creative than management, and it's a downfall actually. The, the fact of the matter is people that can manage creative people are the wealthiest people on the planet. And, and, and the reason is, is that creative people don't tend to be disciplined. We're motivated. We sure. want to accomplish something. We're not disciplined. And I, what I mean by that is uh, creativity must operate on a clock. And a lot of creative people get creative whenever they're creative. And no, it doesn't work that way. Stephen, uh, uh, Stephen King says writers write. So in order to be a good writer, what you need to do is you need to sit down at your computer at 9 a.m. and you need to stare at a blank screen until something appears. <laughs> and you do that on a daily basis because if you don't do that on a daily basis, if you wait to be inspired, you'll never sit down at the computer. Right. And, and I, I have a belief. My belief is put out crap. 
and then put out crap 2.0. It, <laughs> it works for the software industry. Right. <laughs> now, one of the things that stifles productivity is that people want things to be perfect and perfection paralyzes. You've got to be willing to put out things that are less than perfect so that it gets better over time. I don't care what it is. I don't care you know, if you're manufacturing cars or building software or being romantic. Sure. You've got to do whatever it is you can do in the moment and then get better next time. Rehearse, review, revise. Awesome. And so with this passive, you know, the passive income kind of model that you teach and everything and you know, that you've created for yourself, um, what are kind of, I guess, maybe the three best or the three benefits or the lifestyle that's been able to afford for you? Because obviously you said you don't go or you don't live an over exuberant life, but what are maybe some of the benefits that it's really provided for you and your family? Right. Well, I did live the over exuberant life. So I did have the big house and I did have the big cars. I did the private schools. I had the nanny five. I have three kids. I had the nanny five days a week and I did do all that. So, you know, it was, it was quite humbling and quite a kick in the ego to have to tell my wife, like half my income's gone and we're going to have to, you know, adjust. So we got rid of the house. We got rid of the cars. We got rid of the private school. And uh, we started playing charades on the weekends instead of going out to like Mastro's like we used to. I, I th actually think, you know, I look back at it, it was really hard to do. But now it's kind of a blessing because I can really tell people honestly that, you know, all those things are great, but they won't make you happy. They really won't. So, you know, it was sort of a uh, a spiritual awakening for me about what's really important in my life. So what's really important to me, why I'm doing this is freedom and flexibility. And so, so I work three days a week. I take Mondays off. I take Fridays off. Tuesday, I do my podcast. Wednesday, I have meetings. And then Thursday, I work on the business. So I theme my days. And, you know, just this morning, like you can see, I worked out. I had coffee with my wife. And so for me, it's really about this model allows me to really focus on what's really most important to me, which ultimately is the quality of my relationships. Okay. Right. It's not going to do me any good to have all this money and my wife and children hate me and <laughs> right. not know or not know me. Right. Sure. Or. I don't know, just kind of not be the kind of person I want to be. Right. Right. Or I'm stressed out and I'm always I'm not present. You know, for sure. Uh, yeah. You know, anxious all the time because I'm I'm constantly worried about this or that. So that's really what the model has afforded me is, you know, I, my passive income exceeds my fixed expenses. I'm challenged every day. I'm intellectually challenged. I love working on the business and growing the business, creating systems and processes, um, doing different, you know, things and and learning more and having this community, which is which is you know awesome, but. Um, ultimately that freedom and flexibility is, I'm really in the freedom business is what I'm in. Right. Yeah. No, and I think that, and that's very, really important because a lot of times as entrepreneurs, we get so caught up and, you know, we're going, we're pushing hard and everything else. And a lot of that other pieces get, you know, we, we, we don't have that presence when we're communicating with our family or our spouse or friends and, you know, and, or we just, we lose the freedom that we're trying to get. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, that typical entrepreneurial dilemma. They, they either have money and no time or they have time and no money, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> what, um, what would be, I guess, one last thing you'd like to leave our audience with that uh, you feel is important to their journey? 
I, I think, you know, the value of grit, right? And I, I love that Zig Ziglar quote. If you'll do for the next three to five years what other people won't do, you'll be able to do the rest of your life what other people can't do. And so, but I think that a lot of times we come up with like this artificial timeline and, you know, we might be really great at one thing and then we try to do another thing and our expectation is, well, we should be just as good at that. But it's, when it's new, like you've got to go through the suffering of the learning curve and sort of, I don't have to say embrace the suck, right? But once you kind of get to that point, then it, you know, life becomes amazing. Cool. No, that's awesome. Multiple businesses that you've owned over the years, kind of taking that and, you know, starting your real estate business from your accident. I mean, what was kind of like that big aha lesson that you kind of took from that whole thing? Well, from the car accident or starting the business? I, I guess that in that kind of that whole from, yeah, the car accident and then moving into your business. I, I guess if I wanted to really go like a hundred thousand foot overview of what lessons I was learning is just that being an entrepreneur, I had more, I had more stability and more control, even though okay. growing up, I was told having a degree and a job was stability. Mm. I realized that my job was firefighting and with physical injuries, that job was not an option. Sure. And because I was not on duty, uh, my buddies and I, I was off duty when the car accident happened. So if I was in the fire truck responding to the scene of a, uh, you know, of a 911 call and got my injury, everything would have been fine. The fact that I was in a car with my buddies and not on duty, it's like sucks for you, buddy. So the point is I realized having a job is less secure than knowing how to make money. So I guess what I realized in that is whether I'd ever physically heal or not or regardless of what the world does, me learning how to make money on my own versus relying on knowing a skill set or a craft that someone else will compensate me for, which is what work is. As a firefighter, I had those skill sets. As an accountant in a Fortune 500 company, as a freaking secretary, you all have these skill sets that you're compensated for. Me, instead of having a skill set that someone paid me for, creating skill sets of how to make money on my own, I realized was way more of a security than this illusion that school had taught me if I get a degree and have a job, that's security. It's like, well, no, as long as my income relies on someone else's signature being on my paycheck, there's insecurity because that guy has to, or gal has to keep signing that check. But when I'm making my own money, I, I have freedom to, to, you know, win and lose of course, but at least have the skill sets to make myself money forever. And, you know, and I think having those skill sets, like you mentioned is, I think every, I mean, that's something everybody should have at some point. I mean, like right now I've, my boy, I have twin boys that are eight. My daughter is almost 10. And I mean, I've been working with them and teaching them since they were young about entrepreneurship and this. And, you know, they all have like their own little business, whether it's stuff local. My daughter has an online business, econ business, selling pet products and everything that she makes. And so I think understanding and having those skills is, I think, key and important, especially with the way things are, you know, with the way the economy and schools changing and, and everything overall. What are some of the key things that you've learned that you've been able to teach other people um, you know, along your journey? Uh, yeah, so it's been really cool to get to rub elbows with some of the most iconic people out there like Les Brown, right? And, you know, Jack Canfield, author of Chicken Soup for the Soul. And then, you know, some of the people that are on their way up now, like the Grant Cardones and the Gary V's and all this stuff. And, you know, I've learned so many, so many specific things to the individual that I'm hanging out with, but as a, as a general sense, they've got a ton of energy. Like, you know, uh, what's his name? Grant Cardone, six years old. He's got way more energy than I do. And I would say energy for his business, if that makes sense. So, so like we all have exhausting days, but that guy's on fire. And so is Gary V. I mean, the guy works 18 hours a day, seven days a week. Right. And so 
one thing I've seen about these people who out there, you hear their podcasts and read their New York Times bestselling books and you see them making hundreds of millions of dollars a year, they, they don't do that very passively sitting around sipping cocktails and working two hours a week. So I guess one thing I've noticed about all of them is they have insane, incredible work ethic. But some of them, maybe not Gary Vee, but some of them have uh, a really great balance too where they take that tenacity that they put in their business into their personal lives as well and they go all in. So they go all in income generation going nuts. Then they shut it down. They go all in family time, vacation time, et cetera, right? And so and I think Gary's kind of coming around that corner. I, I watched him recently say something like he was going on a one-week vacation. I was like, oh my gosh, he needs to check his temperatures. He's, is he coherent <laughs> right now, right? That's not what he does. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, so so that would be one thing. Um, another thing is they all have great teams. You know, I don't I don't know anyone that got to that level as a solopreneur, which is a huge push right now. And I get it. You know, I work from home, but I have an 800 square foot office attached to my house where my employees are working right now on the other side of the house. So so although I do work from home, I do have a team. Right. Uh, I've never met someone who's at the top top who does it all by themselves. Now, there are many seven-figure income earners, like e-commerce people who are a lot of who listen to your show, that from their laptop on the North Shore of Hawaii watching the pipeline you know, competition are making seven figures all by themselves. Cool, uh, and that's awesome, but specific to the ones you're talking about who are on Thrive's stage, who have hundreds of thousands or even million-plus followers on social media channels and are making nine figures or multiple eight figures, those people all have incredible teams. And so that's one thing I've learned and copied was, you know, I very much was a solopreneur in the sense that it was my real estate investment business, but everybody was independently contracted. It's like my realtor and it's my contractor and it's all these people that work for me, but they're not on payroll. They're working for anybody. They're just to actually have an internal team was a huge game changer for me. So I would say those are two things for the listeners of the show to really think about is you know, you gotta you gotta show up with energy. You gotta freaking absolutely time block and destroy your days. Like don't get distracted watching butterflies in two PM in the afternoon. Like go nuts, head down, and then end it and then go nuts in your personal life. Don't just kind of I don't know, fudge those lines and and uh and then also have a great team. Sure. Give me maybe like three highlights from the book that you feel are really important and that as entrepreneurs, it's something that we can apply to what we do. First thing you need to know is, is this and it's a slightly longer story, but it's so critical, especially to your audience. So I'm going to walk in through a, a weird door, but over the past 15 years, scientists from every imaginable discipline, zoology, anthropology, uh, psychopharmacology, whatever, have discovered that pretty much every mammal, many birds, and even some insects have figured out a way to alter their consciousness. Okay. You've probably seen this in your kids. Kids will spin in circles. They'll hyperventilate. They'll roll down hills, sure. right? All of this to kind of knock out normal waking consciousness and tap into something else. Right. It happens all over the animal kingdom. Birds will chew on marijuana seeds. Cats get high on catnip. Right. <laughs> Iboga root, which is ibogaine, a really powerful psychedelic. Jaguars in the Amazon will eat ayahuasca roots. Mm. Um, and it, like, this goes on and on and on. Dolphins get stoned on puffer shit fish toxin, <laughs> right? I mean, this is endless. It's, it's literally almost all mammals. And so the question, like, after they discovered all this, the next question was, well, what the hell for, right? Like stone birds behave like stoned humans. They fly in our windshields and go flat. Like right. it's not always the best species strategy for survival. So why is it so omnipresent was the question. And what they've discovered is that 
animals everywhere get stuck in ruts. They'll do the same shit over and over and over, expecting different results. Right. Only way to stop doing that is to turn off the self, the part of your brain that is still stuck in that rut. Get that widened, higher perspective you get in these non-ordinary states of consciousness. Right? In other words, what we've discovered is that altered states of consciousness are the very tool evolution gave us for innovation. It's how we innovate. Right. It's how we solve certain kinds of creative problems. It's actually, for other reasons, how we collaborate and how we best cooperate. So two things are key off of this. One is one of the reasons entrepreneurs and one of the reasons businesses have such a hard time training employees up in skills like creative problem solving, collaboration, cooperation, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. Because we keep trying to train up of the skill, and what we need to be training is a state of mind. That's what the data consistently shows. Right. Okay, so that's point A. Point B, you asked me for three things. Right? That's one. Here's two. We're coming off the same idea. So Jamie and I at the Flow Genome Project wanted to measure this. We So this urge to intoxication that scientists have found, they started doing more research, and they now call it a fourth evolutionary driver. Our first three drivers are the urge for sex, shelter, and sustenance, right? Like these are basic evolutionary drivers. So this urge to intoxication, they believe is as powerful as these first three drivers, a fundamental thing. So Jamie and I decided to do something. We don't think it's ever been done before. We decided we wanted to put some numbers around an evolutionary driver. So we measured, we spent six months with a team of researchers putting together the altered state economy. This is how much money do we spend, sometimes intentionally, right? The biohackers having their brains, sometimes intentionally, the executive pounding cocktails at happy hour on Friday, right? How often, how far do we go out of our way? How much time and money do we spend trying to alter our consciousness? And we were as conservative as possible. And we looked at everything from legal and illegal drugs through like, self-help workshops, not the like skills acquisition stuff, but like Tony Robbins, Giant Within Seminars, where he's trying to change your consciousness, right? We look at recreational activities, gambling, action sports, etc., And really as cautious as possible, our number was $4 trillion a year. Wow. In context, that's one sixteenth of the global economy. It is more than the GDP of Britain or India or Russia. It is how much we spend trying to get out of our mind and here's the 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 thing that is important for your audience this is my last thing which is for entrepreneurs it means there's four trillion dollars of opportunity out there right now today waiting right and i mean if you look at even like Tim Ferriss has pulled all his sure. money out of VCing and he's trying to build a microdosing pharmacological performance company right, right. like that's what He's doing, yeah. right? Like, so like we're seeing this. If you look at uh, the number of the rising number of patents for consciousness hacking technology, you know, it went from like, I think in 2010, the figures are in the book, but it was like 900 a year. And then it doubled to 1800 and then doubled again to 3,600. And now it's like over 11,000 a year. Right. Neurotech patents. Um, Elon Musk has his brain implant company. I mean, this is, this is not slowing down is my point. Right. I am Josh Felber. You are watching Making Bank. Get out and be extraordinary. 
Thank you for listening to Making Bank. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave a review. And sharing is caring. Follow Josh Felber on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram for more. You can also listen to Making Bank on Amazon Alexa, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and watch on Apple TV, Success Thinkers Network, Amazon Fire, and YouTube. 